was young, even though, you know, I would say that I wasn't religious when push came to shove and I was getting shoved really hard in the mountains, I would, of course, pray to God and, and make promises with God that I would never come back up here again if he just got me back down to the car. Ever have a moment like this? You say, I'll never do it again. Well, I think we all know where this is going. I quit doing that because I knew he wasn't listening anymore. And I knew I was just, you know, saying a bunch of BS because we both knew that I'd get back up here. Meister fans, mark your calendars. Wednesday, November 11th at 2 o'clock p.m. I will be sitting down with free solo rock climber and now author Alex Honnold. We're going to be chatting in New York City and you can watch live on our website. We're going to have a streaming video of our interview and you'll be able to submit your own questions. First half hour is the interview. We'll be talking about his book, Alone on the Wall. We'll be talking about free solo rock climbing. And the second half hour will be Q&A submitted to our website Keep an eye out on the website. Once I get my act together, I'll have a post with all the details there. Uh, MTNMeister.com, Wednesday, November 11th, 2 o'clock Eastern Time with Alex Honnold. Hello and welcome. This is the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and with us, we're exploring the mind of Barry Blanchard. Hello, Barry. Hi there. Barry is a Canadian alpinist in the 80s and 90s. He and his partners established some pretty highly technical routes in the Canadian Rockies and also the Himalaya. These high-risk, dangerous exploits are chronicled in his most recent book, The Calling, A Life Rocked by the Mountains. Thanks for joining us, Barry. Hey, you're welcome. And you're also a movie star. Uh, for maybe three minutes total screen time over half a dozen Hollywood features. Yeah, not a huge return on, you know, being right. there. Right. <laughs> Vertical Limit, K2, and Cliffhanger, some notable ones. What What's your role in these movies? I haven't seen any of them. Oh, well, yeah, don't, don't rush out on my account. But uh, mostly I deal with uh, mountain safety and rigging, so keeping uh, – the cast and crew out of danger from anything that the mountains or even helicopter landings and takeoffs can present them. And then um, I have also been in charge of training the actors to try to look like climbers on the screen. And if you've seen any of those movies, especially Vertical Limit, you may have an opinion on how successful my department was. <laughs> and, and I, well, what is your opinion of the result of these movies? Uh, you know, as a climber, they're <laughs> barely palatable, probably. But um, I think they're just, first and foremost, uh, Hollywood adventure films. And they're often set against a backdrop of uh, firefighting or race car driving or something else. Mm -hmm. war, war, usually. And if you have been a participant, a knowledgeable participant in any of those um, situations or... Um, human endeavors, then you will know that <laughs> <laughs> they are first and foremost a Hollywood action film. My right. brother really liked all of them, so he doesn't know a thing about climbing. There you go. Right. It's funny. Well, we were talking about this uh, the other day, a few friends and myself, how when you're an expert in something, it, it takes a lot more for you to appreciate something. So I'm sure there are so many films out there that we have seen uh, that we really, truly enjoyed, but the people who are experts uh, in whatever discipline it is hate them. 
Yeah, or cringe. Um, yeah, and once <laughs> one of the terrible things about uh, being on a Hollywood set is you realize that. Uh, you know, there's two people maybe in a love scene on the front of the camera and there's a hundred people on the other side of the camera. <laughs> yeah, the love scene is filmed in like 10 second snippets and then cut. Can we get some spitzer on buddy's butt? Wow. So like all of us, when you pay your money and step in the doors with the popcorn, just suspend your disbelief and you'll have a lot better time. Right. Yes, Exactly. All right, so let's learn a little bit more about you. I saw you grew up in Canada, and you're half Native American, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you discover climbing? Well, yeah, I, um, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, so I could see the mountains on the western horizon of the city. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I grew up uh, uh, kind of in a, uh, I don't know, <laughs> rough neighborhood, wrong side of the tracks, grew up pretty poor and uh didn't have the chance to go to the mountains until you know i was in scouts and uh yeah climbing called to me called to me through um you know a number of experiences one of which was even when i was uh nine years old riding a greyhound bus back from medicine hat alberta where i've been visiting my grandmother to calgary where my mom was going to pick me up at the bus station and having a gal in her 20s read to me from The White Spider, um, Heinrich Herrera's, you know, Alpine classic about the first ascent of the north face of the Eiger. And, uh, yeah, something definitely stirred in my bloodstream. And she was finishing reading some of the pages to me as we came on Calgary, and I could see the mountains. And that was one of the calls that I heard. And eventually I got the opportunity to answer them. And as far as learning to climb, that uh, happened pretty much knew how a climbing fifth class climbing system worked before I ever touched rock hmm. because I read all of the books in my high school library and practiced all the techniques in the basement on the stringers between the floor joists and on buildings late at night with my buddies learned to repel and yeah urban urban climber before there was climbing gyms <laughs> right <laughs> good way to put it uh yeah. you were almost an armchair mountaineer at a very young age and then turned into a real mountaineer right <laughs> yeah 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 except i didn't spend a lot of time in armchairs <laughs> right. but you know yeah. there you go <laughs> um so correct me if i'm wrong uh there's no data behind this but it seems like most of the people who are who end up at least pushing it to the extremes suffered some sort of adversity uh, maybe in their childhood, maybe a little bit later in their life. You said that um, you grew up in poverty. Do you think that that had some influence on why you ended up pushing it to the extremes? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, somewhat the poverty, but more so the uh, stratification. And I should pre- preface this with I don't. I think Western North America is one of the most unstratified cultures that I've ever mm-hmm. been in. And uh, seems to me, I, I don't want to say this being as you're in Boston right now, Ben, but as you go farther east, society gets a bit more stratified in North America. And then as you jump the pond, it definitely gets way more stratified as you get into Britain and stuff. But uh, for me, it was more so being, you know, a dark-skinned, brown-eyed, half-breed kid going to school by virtue of chance and geography one of the most affluent parts of Calgary being teamed up with one of the most non-affluent parts of Calgary to be in the same grade school. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of truth for me to just try to keep up with uh, 
<laughs> the blue-eyed, mm-hmm. privileged, <laughs> rich kids and try to do well. Yeah, try to achieve, I guess. And uh, yeah, try to make my mom proud. We've heard from other people that the reason that they like going to the mountains is because the mountain doesn't judge who you are, or what you look like. Uh, was that part of the attraction? I can't say that it was. I think, you know, I, I got into it when I was in my teens. So I was a young, uh, yeah, young, wilder guy. And I, even in the city, I kind of, I tended to gravitate to wilder guys. I mean, we were, you know, juvenile delinquents, basically, <laughs> a little tribe of juvenile delinquents. And um, it was more the adventure and, uh, Definitely the adrenaline and the need for young men to risk and uh, learn what they can by risking and to, you know, risk real things. Why, why do you think you wanted to risk so much? I don't know if all young men really have that kind of desire. What were like, was what you were doing risky and why did you like it? Um. We we did we we assumed risks that uh, few climbers would assume today to to attain kind of novice climbing grades mm-hmm. and the novice climbing grades of say five six a lot of people in North America know what five six means were after for me two years of of effort at trying to come to grips with five five huh. and five four. And that was largely because there, you know, we we had to put in. It was all traditional climbing, and we didn't have any contact with other climbers. And although I knew about it out of books, we were largely l- learning it out there. And basically, I started leading on day one and led for the first two years until I met, you know, a buddy who could, you know, got introduced to a guy who climbed better than I could. And that wasn't all that great, but even at those novice levels, especially traditional climbing, there can be huge amounts of, you know, there's definitely risk. And I, I disagree. I th- I think there's a need in, I think, almost all young men that uh, we need to push and, you know, we need to risk and we need to, and we almost need to get broken. We need to break something. That's a rite of passage. So. <laughs> Yeah. I like I like how you put that. What about the women? You know, I it's different and I know I probably get in a world of heck for that, but <laughs> yeah, you know, men and women are different. I got two young daughters, my buddy's got a young boy and two young boys and they're just different, you know. Uh the the tolerance for risk in the young male and there's always there's always anomalies or differences, but yeah, yeah, they're less risk adverse, I guess. Uh-huh. And I, I think if you look at uh, the numbers of uh, people who end up uh, pursuing alpinism, which is my thing, it's still lots of males. It is. Lots of, yeah, yes, yes. lots of males and lots of young males. So um i don't know you could talk for a while there's biological reasons for that there's sociological reasons for that there's lots of reasons my own thinking is that uh probably sociologically um bent that way and i think that men were the guys who went out and risked in the outdoors hunting and gathering for you know most of our species history Mm -hmm. and uh women took risks at home and and uh 
yeah, I think we're still imprinted that way. Yeah. So if adrenaline and risk were maybe some of the reasons early on, what do you like about climbing now? You're still a guide. Um, you do some writing too, some mountaineering literature. Uh, your writing's beautiful, by the way. Thank um, you. So what do you like about climbing now? Oh, these days for me, it's uh, – in what I do, it's getting up while everybody else is asleep, maybe going out by a full moon and feeling the crackle of frost under my feet and seeing frost on the trees and seeing my breath as I move up through the forest. And then the dawn is always a miracle, um, even more so when you're you're in the environment and you've been in it for – say three or four days and you're down 15 pounds of body weight and you really need the dawn because you're you're trembling with cold and the dawn is a miracle and to see it you know come onto the mountains is is more so you know it just staggers you sometimes even in the town i live in in canmore my daughter's ran out on the balcony yesterday to see the daddy daddy come see the pinky clouds look at the pinky clouds and uh yeah, just from my balcony here. But then, you know, as you move up the mountain and get the equipment out and start, you know, climbing, um, the whole range of experiences and sensory inputs are there. And I recently read something by uh, one of my buddies, Kelly Cordes, you know, that I think is really true, that things are just brighter and crisper and I hear better and I see more and I smell more when I'm climbing. <laughs> There's uh, lots, lots out there. And as you go up the mountain, of course, the physical challenge of moving yourself up steep, especially, you know, snow, ice and rock mountain that's coming at you all at the same time, I mean, is amazingly engaging It. uh brings you absolutely into the present and you that's it you live in the present for term you know for i don't know even half hour hours at a time where you're just dealing with the the just the getting your body the next you know foot up the mountain it sounds yeah i could i could go on and on <laughs> there well you, you make it sound so great but then we see in the literature all this you know you have climbing partners that die you get hit by avalanches all this suffering was there ever a time in your career when you thought that climbing wasn't worth it? You know, all these benefits that you just described weren't worth all that you lost? Yeah, and, you know, death is, uh, is it's, its its own category. And, uh, you know, after I lost some dear friends to climbing, like my my good buddy Dave Cheeseman died on the Hummingbird Bridge of Mount Logan in 1987, and uh, yeah, I quit climbing for uh, I don't know a year or something like that, and took time to reflect and uh, realize that for me, I still wanted to do it and got more out of it than what it had cost me. But um, yeah, you know, everyone wants an answer about death and. Uh, I don't know. One of the unfortunate things about it is a big closed door, right? Bang, that's it. He's gone. Nothing comes back. So, and is that even true? Because I've definitely felt his presence in the mountains since he's been gone, undeniably him. And then, you know, the other part of that question was the suffering. And uh, I don't, you know, you asked me when, 
you know, I thought I'd give it all up because of the suffering. Probably on any major climb that I've done, there's right. some point where it's just like this. Just I, I hate this. This is horrid. This is I can't. You know, I, I feel like a a beaten mule. <laughs> I just don't want to do this anymore. You know, Mister Wizard, Mister Wizard, come and take me away. Where's the elevator? <laughs> but you know, those those. Uh, those parts of the experience are, are kind of fleeting and, and they get less with age. You kind of know that you're there. When I was young, even though, you know, I would say that I wasn't religious when push came to shove and I was getting shoved really hard in the mountains, I would, of course, pray to God and, and make promises with God that I would never come back up here again if he just got me back down to the car. Yeah. And then... I quit doing that because I knew he wasn't listening anymore. And I knew I was just, you know, saying a bunch of BS because we both knew yeah. that I'd get back down to the car <laughs> and I'd come back up here. And uh, the other part of suffering or the, the uh, you know, the hard physical toil of alpinism, and it is hard. I mean, the price to play is pretty high. You've got to have yourself in really, really good shape and you've got to have a tremendous amount of skills together and, you know, probably thousands of days of experience to function in these environments but is physical toil and uncomfort being cold and being wet sometimes being scared is that all a bad thing uh i don't myself i don't think so i think it's uh just just part of it and uh I don't know if you ever want to embrace it but i think you go into it eventually with eyes wide open and just you know, this is this is the the price for the magic side of it. So, hmm. all right, I have a theory on this. Let me know what you think. Um, psychologists break up. They say we have two different selves. We have a, a experiencing self, and mm-hmm. then we have a remembering self. Mm-hmm. The experiencing self is if I was to ask you on a mountain during the climb, during the experience, how do you feel right now? And then the remembering self is after the climb i say okay looking back how do you remember that experience when we analyze those two different selves the remembering self is really the one that matters because that's what lasts that remembering self they've discovered is defined by peaks and ends they say so the peak of the experience being your high points and then Mm -hmm. the end being how you end the experience not necessarily defined by duration, the length, or mm-hmm. troughs within reason, those low points. So right. when I look at mountaineering, it's full of all of these peaks, no pun intended, and then also ending on a good note, as long as you survive, right. it seems like a good deal. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's an old adage that, you know, <laughs> alpinists are optimists with short memories, but mm-hmm. – <laughs> um, I think that there's uh, definitely a lot of truth to that. But um, for myself, especially in trying to go back and write about these experiences, um, you end up looking at them a lot, I think, closer and and dredging your memory with, uh, you know, um, things that you wrote at the time, pictures you took at the time, conversations that you had at the time with guys and conversations that you had at the present about what happened on the mountain, you know, with your other partners, you just look at it 
a lot more. And uh, well, it's beneficial yeah. to have those things that you wrote and the pictures that you took during the climb. How do how do you think your writing would be different if you didn't have those? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> I probably know because some of the climbs I've written about, I don't have those. Yeah, so I just look at that writing, but. Uh, um, yeah, no, it's an interesting question because then it's coming all out of remembrance right. and uh, without any kind of uh, cues to remembrance. And even, you know, some of the stuff that I, we've done, is, there's videos and there's, uh, you know, recordings and stuff. So there's there's a number of different ways of tweaking your memory or jump-starting it, getting it going. Um, yeah, but without that, yeah. That's it's a, well, it's a interesting question. <laughs> that's well. That's how the human brain works. When you th- like, when you bring back things from memory, your brain kind of fills in the details. Yeah, it is interesting because sometimes you know I uh, write from memory and and write stuff and then go back to something that's factual and it's like, oh, <laughs> that was the wrong day, <laughs> or you know, oh no, I wasn't with that guy. I was with this other guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and especially when you're so delirious on the mountain at times. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we he had delirious uh No? Some sometimes, yeah, delirious with with happiness sometimes. <laughs> delirious with uh, you know, uh threat and fear sometimes. Um yeah. Yeah, yeah, those 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 come to mind. Yeah, another thing which I thought was interesting in a piece you wrote was about uh, trusting your gut, trusting uh, intuition or your feeling. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? How uh, sometimes on the mountain you you say, "I just have a bad feeling about this. I'm going to turn around," or conversely, "I have a good feeling about this. I'm going to continue." Yeah, yeah, I think uh, um, there's a whole. Uh, bunch of information that you're you're processing and gathering as as you climb and not all of which you know at any one time you could i don't know maybe you could remove yourself and sit yourself down at a desk and go through and list everything that's going into making a decision but in the moment a lot of those things um are coming from remembrances of being in similar situations in past for sure. Mm. Um, there's information coming in that you can't, you don't have time nor, you know, you just don't have time to say, okay, that's coming from here or I'm feeling this because of that, or this is a piece of information and it might, you know, some of it's just the way your foot's sinking in the snow and, uh, that, um, gets played through, you know, the, the, the computer or the algorithm inside you that's been developed over thousands of days and you get feelings and uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't really um, question them too much, um, especially when they're very, very powerful feelings they are coming from somewhere. And uh, I don't need to know exactly where in the moment, but I think I'd be, uh, kind of dumb not to listen to them. That's, and, yeah, that's cool. And I, I'd imagine as you get older or at least more experienced, then you can trust those feelings a little bit more because most likely they're being recalled from all of the experiences you've had in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, you know, there's a formula within your, uh, I don't know, a projector, a lens, 
um, filters. <laughs> There's a mosaic inside you that puts that new piece in and puts it through the gears for you and lets you try to figure it out. And yeah, with age, you know, you begin to be out there more for, you know, the guys you're out there with. And then um, the experience of kind of every, I don't know, foot of the way up the mountain. And uh, one of the problems with listening to a bad intuition, say, on a blue sky day that tells you to go down is like, wow, you know, am I really going down? It's, it's perfect. Why am I going down? And not getting to the summit, say, which is, you know, whatever, you know, what we're supposed to do. Um, that doesn't matter so much <laughs> later on. Right. <laughs> You're just out there just to be out there. And the summit is a really great thing. And it's great if you can get up there and realize it's time to start going down now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's not nowhere near as important as it is earlier on. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the commitments that you now have. You said you have a couple of daughters. Um, how has that changed your perspective? I mean, you're not climbing, I don't think, at the level that you were before, but you're still out there, right? Yeah, well, mostly as a professional, I make my living as a mountain guide. So, um, you know, I guide probably 200 days a year. Wow. So it's a full-time job. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely having uh, children um, – changes your perspective for sure being a father um and the responsibility that comes with being a, being a father um you know you don't take them lightly and i think for fathers and once again this is you know there's there's different ways of solving this but i think the traditional role of the father is to provide and you take your ability to provide quite seriously and uh yeah you know, if you want to be a father, it's really easy. Um, just take your calendar, clear a third of it, and that's <laughs> what you got to do. And it's, I think, for initially for a mom, it's take your calendar, clear half of it. <laughs> yeah. The other part of it uh, is that, you know, I became a father at 45. So um, I wasn't a young man anymore. And uh, just the natural changes um, within me. Mm-hmm had a lot to do with it too, independent of being a father, you know, I'm just not as summit oriented or as risk, uh, non and like as willing to take risks as I was as a young guy. And then as an athlete, yeah, no, I'll never be the athlete that I was in my mid thirties. Yeah. Did that ever bother you? Does that ever bother you? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's sad. I mean, it's sad. Buddy. <laughs> start not not being able to do what it what it was it'd be nice to be that kind of physical athlete forever but that isn't the way it works right right it's that big closed door man <laughs> it gets closer every day <laughs> um another line that i really liked in your writing uh this is another commitment although uh, i don't think this time around it worked out too well it said one one hand gripped my wedding ring, the other gripped my ice axe. Yeah, although, yeah, it wasn't just the ice axe. I think uh, you could, you know, <laughs> the free ice axe. <laughs> yeah. Barry Blanchard is the author of The Calling, A Life Rocked by the Mountains. You can find the link to that book on Barry's Meister profile page on our website, MTN. 
meister.com. Finally, Barry, we'd like to hear who you'd like to hear as the next Mountain Meister. Well, I think it'd be great to hear more from Wojtek Kurtyka, the Polish alpinist. Um, anytime you can hear or read more from Wojtek Kurtyka, it's a great thing. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, one of my climbing buddies, Scott Backies, is a really interesting, well-thought man who has uh, his own particular take on all of this and always interesting and rewarding to hear Scott talk about what he loves. Keep an ear out for Wojtek and Scott on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Barry Blanchard, wonderful having you today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Ben. Meister fans, check out Barry's Meister profile page for the links to his writing. It is superb. And we'll also have links to anything else we talked about today, mtnmeister.com. Also, if you like my voice and you like the outdoors industry, check out another podcast. It's called Audio Outdoorist. I've partnered up with the Outdoor Industry Association to host their podcast. We talk about topics integral to the outdoors industry. Our first series is called Made in America. We talk about domestic sourcing and production and why that is important to this incredible industry. We're on iTunes, every other platform, Audio Outdoorist. And as usual, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.